0: Well, we are learning to share our faith with others, and that is quite a daunting task. Learning to share our faith with others is challenging. Do you know, I've already heard from so many of you who have taken a risk in trying to strike up a spiritual conversation with someone around you, and uh, we really want to capture some of these stories. So listen, if you have taken a risk, if you have tried to share your faith with others, uh, we want to capture your story. So we've got uh, Jordan Hudink. Uh, Karen Heunick, they're in the back right there. Do you see Karen with the selfie stick? That's called a selfie stick. She's got a phone on the end of it and you can take a video. Hey, we want you to find her after the service and just give us a quick one minute recap of a risk you took when you shared your faith with someone else. I don't care if it went well or if it went really badly. Like if the person ran away screaming even better. Share your good stories with us. Share your bad stories with us because we want to be sharing our faith with others. Now, you know, we've spent a few weeks on the topic of origin. Uh, How did we get here? And uh, those were great sermons. If you didn't hear them, you can listen to them online. How did you arrive safely on this planet? And we learned that life is pretty miraculous. Uh, You are here this morning, thankfully, because the 100 trillion cells in your body did their job last night. So say thank you to like them. Thank you so much for keeping me alive. Also, you noticed this morning the sun is still burning at a toasty 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Thankfully, it didn't run out of fuel while you slept. And, uh, and also, gravity didn't change throughout the night. And uh, gravity didn't weaken and decide to just let us all go. I'm grateful for that. It's so easy to take for granted everything that is keeping you physically alive right now in this moment. You have God to thank for that. God made you. Your physical life is an act of God. That's how you're here, and it's a wonder. But why are you here? Why? Why did God keep gravity on last night? Why is the sun, and he keeps pouring fuel on it, why? Is there a reason To the naturalists, to the atheists, our purpose is a mystery. They don't know why we're here. Or worse, they think there is no purpose. Stephen Hawking wrote a book called The Brief History of Time. And in that book, he talked all about how we got here and uh, his guess to the physics of the origin of the world. But then in the end, he wrote this. Now, if we only knew why, we would have the mind of God. This whole book is filled with how, and in the end, he can't tell us anything about why we're here. It's a mystery. He would say he doesn't know. Richard Dawkins is more bold in trying to explain the meaning of life, of course. He's a well-known atheist. He says this, There is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. Nothing but pointless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. It's every living object's sole reason for being. There is no meaning, he would say. I don't know the meaning, Hawkins would say. Um, what about you? Thankfully, the Bible, the Bible gives us a different answer. First Timothy six nineteen says that we may take hold of the life that is truly life. Hey, listen, God wants you to know why you're here there is a reason he wants you to know it. But the Bible is clear. You can miss it. You can be here living physically and not living in the way God intended you to live. If you're not careful, you can waste your life. Uh, John Piper in his book, which is titled Don't Waste Your Life, says this. Maybe you don't care very much whether you make a lasting difference for the sake of something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like being around you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could just have a good job with a good wife or husband and a good couple of kids and a nice car, long weekends and a few good friends, a fun retirement and a quick and easy death and no help. If you could have all that, even without God, you would be satisfied. And that is a wasted life. If we're not careful, we will miss the life God has planned for us. If we're not careful, we will live without a sense of purpose, knowing why God put us here. But God wants you to know why you're here, and more importantly, He wants you to be able to talk to other people about why they're here. So let's learn about meaning today, and let's learn about how to talk to others about the meaning of life. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you went to such great lengths to make life possible in this world. And you, even right now, are sustaining us in a wonderful way. We give you all the glory. But why? Why have we gone through what we've gone through? Why is our life what it is today? How do we process all the events that will soon unfold? Give us a sense of meaning. Help us to understand why. Train us to talk to others about the purpose you have for them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can open your Bibles to Isaiah 43. We'll be in several places today in the Bible. You don't have to chase down every verse, but Isaiah 43 is the place where we're going to start. You need to know a little background on the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet, which means he speaks for God. God told Isaiah to speak, and his voice primarily went to the nation of Israel. Um, Now, in this context, you have to know that Isaiah is speaking primarily to, to the nation of Israel. So some of what he says is specifically for the nation of Israel, which means there are some things directly that don't apply to you or me. They were written about Israel. However, God wanted Israel to teach the world about himself. So you will learn things about your purpose through these verses, but understand that they were first written to the nation of Israel, and then you'll get the context. Here we go in Isaiah 43, verse 1, where it says this. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. God begins by reminding Israel, I created you. I made you. I formed you. You remember how he called Israel out of Egypt and he gave them life as a nation. Do you know that that's true about you and me? God can say the same to you. I made you, I created you, I formed you. You can jot that down in your bulletin. When it comes to the meaning of life and while we're here, it starts with origin. God created you. He made you. This is so important to understand from the very beginning. God is reminding his nation, he gave them life. Do you know the most humbling thing that you can recognize about your life? Is someone else gave it to you. You didn't pull yourself out of a magic hat. In fact, nothing in this universe caused itself. It's universally true that everything that began to exist was caused by something else. You were brought into this world because humans decided to make life, and ultimately you were brought into this world because God decided to give you life. Physical life first, and it says here also, I have called you by name. I have redeemed you. You are mine. That refers to spiritual life. The Israelites being called out of Egypt into the promised land portrays salvation. And God says, by my voice, I gave you spiritual life when I called you. Do you understand that your life is not your life? Do you want to know what will break your pride to pieces? Understanding that your physical life was handed to you by a far superior being than your own. Someone gave it to you, and that someone is free at any moment to stretch out his hand and take it back because it's his, not yours. That's humbling. It's humbling to recognize that your physical life was handed to you by another being. It's even more humbling to realize that your spiritual life was given to you By a divine being. You could not have given it to yourself. He had to hand it to you. So that you can be alive spiritually and know him forever. When you understand that you have God to thank for your physical life. When you have God to thank for your spiritual life. It should create in you a tremendous overwhelming sense of gratitude. The wonder and the awe and the thankfulness in your heart because God handed you physical life and handed you spiritual life should bind your heart to his for the rest of this life and forever. But too often we live as if our life is our own. And how dare God touch our life? How dare anyone tell us how to live our life? Because we believe the lie that it's actually ours. You were born into a world that was made for the honor of another being. This life is not a banquet in your honor. God didn't lay this whole world out to make you feel awesome. He laid this whole world out so you can see how awesome he is. And if you have that upside down, if you think you exist so that others can love and serve you, you're going to miss the meaning of this life. If you think that, that God exists to love and serve you, you'll miss your purpose because you were handed life from another. We struggle with ungratefulness, don't we? We struggle with ingratitude, and so do our kids. I don't know what your kids are like. But uh, we got three sinful children, all three of them. They came with sin built in, despite the prayers of their parents. And one of the sins they struggle with regularly is ingratitude. All right? You see this in your kids, right? It's the look they get on their face when they open the last Christmas present. And then they look at you like, where's the next one? It's the conversation you have after you take them on a very nice uh, and costly vacation, and then they pitch a fit over candy. And you're like, oh, if you knew what went into this trip, I'm not happy because I don't have candy. Uh, Parents know what ingratitude feels like. You know, it's like when you buy your child a pony and a stable and a pond for her birthday and she says, where's the rainbow? It's ingratitude. We struggle with that. And it's because we don't understand that God gave us life and he gave everything to us. He says, I created you. He says, I formed you. Then he goes on to say this. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. He's reminding Israel of their history. God did take them through the waters of the Red Sea. God did walk them through the Jordan River. It would not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. What kind of relationship does God want you to have with him in this world? He's right there walking you through all of the hardships you face. I'm with you through the water, with you through the river, with you through the fire, and you won't be burned. Because I'm with you, you will make it through this life. That's true of Israel. That's true of you. God wants you to know him personally. He created you to know him personally. Skip down to verse 6. It says in verse 6, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. What does that mean? This is God promising Israel that he will bring his nation back after they've been scattered and exiled. But he's calling them with such affectionate terms my sons, my daughters. And that relationship God had with Israel, which was so special, foreshadowed the relationship you can have with him in Christ. He wants you to be a son, he wants you to be a daughter. He wants to be able to say, don't touch my son, don't touch my daughter, she's mine. God wants to be the father who lovingly sees you through all of the trials of this life. He made you to know him personally. He made you to know his love personally. And then it goes on to say in verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, that's those who are the saved people of God, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You were designed to glorify God. I want you to know exactly what that means. Glory is a radiant expression of God's nature. You can't see God and live, but God's glory shows you that He's been somewhere or He's done something. God's glory is proof of God's presence. And you were made to glorify God. You were designed in His image to be a radiant expression of God's nature. You are supposed to become living proof of God's love, living proof of God's power. And others who know you should know about God because of you. Do you know when uh, Joseph went into the palace um, and he, he became you know, one of Pharaoh's top men and he ruled all the nation, the Pharaoh gave him a nickname. And the Pharaoh's like, what do I call him? What do I call him? And the nickname for Joseph literally means... Uh, God lives. (laughs) God lives. And um, how cool would that be if people nicknamed you that? Hey, you know what I'm going to call Bruce over there based on everything I know about him? I'm going to call him God lives. Because I saw that in his life. God lives. God created you to glorify him. He's a loving father. He wants you to know his love. And you were designed to become proof that he is a loving God. But do you know what? The Bible says that this is only possible when you know his son. You cannot glorify God without his son. You cannot find your purpose in this life without his child. 2 Corinthians 4.6 makes this clear. It says this, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? Where is this knowledge of the glory of God? In the face of Jesus Christ. Do you want to live the life God has planned for you? Do you want to fulfill the purpose he has for you? It's through his son. Jot this down. God created you to what? To worship Christ. You can fill that in. He created you to worship Christ. To lovingly adore the son. Why? Well, because he stepped down from heaven on a rescue mission to save you. Because he left behind all the praise, the power of heaven, and he came down in the form of a baby. He lived the perfect life. He died on the cross. And there he took the penalty for your sins on himself. They threw him in a tomb for it, but then on the third day he rose again. And in in the view of many witnesses, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, where he now reigns in glory. When you understand the truth about Jesus Christ, you don't just like him. You don't just learn about him. You worship him. You worship him. You worship Him like a divine being who's lived forever but stepped down into this life to come and save you from hell. When you get the truth about Christ, you worship Him. And others know it. And then when you worship Him, your relationship with God begins. Worshiping Christ is not the the, uh, graduation of your spiritual life. Worshiping Christ is the birthday, right? It's where everything begins between you and God. Worshiping Christ is where you find your purpose for the first time. All of God's glory is bound up in His Son. You can't get any of it without His Son. Therefore, we worship Christ. Um, You can flip ahead, hold your place in Isaiah, but in the book of Colossians chapter 3, you see just how important Christ is to finding our meaning in this world. Uh, In Colossians 3 verse 1, it's talking about how Jesus is central and how Jesus is supreme to our lives and it says in chapter 3 of Colossians verse 1 if then you have been raised with Christ that means you're saved seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on the earth for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God I love that it's like your life isn't even here on this planet there with Him. And it says in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. How powerful is that? How central is Jesus to you living the life God has planned? Jesus isn't just like one more patch sewed onto the sash of things that matter to you in life. He's not a pin on your backpack or a bumper sticker on your car. He is your life. He has your life. And he's coming back with your life, which is why we worship him. Worship Christ. That's where it all begins. What is worship? Well, I don't mean, you know, hey, please joylessly, routinely come to a meeting every Sunday that you don't like and pretend that it matters to you. I don't mean that. That's not worship. If I had to describe worship, I love William Temple's definition. He said this. Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, nourishment of mind by his truth, purifying of imagination by his beauty, opening of the heart to his love, and submission of will to his purpose. You want to know a great question to ask people when you're talking to someone who doesn't share your faith? A great question to ask them is, what do you live for? What do you live for? And then say, I notice you didn't mention Jesus. I I need you to know that I live for Christ. And tell them that you worship Christ. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses always come to my door. They find me everywhere. They find me at Starbucks. There was one time where it was five on one, five of them and one of me, and we were rumbling in the Starbucks. It was a great, gracious conversation. But they try to make me think that their thing is the same as my thing. Oh, we basically believe the same things; just a few words are different. And and then ultimately what I do is, after I go through their book, and then I drive them to this question. Do you worship Jesus? And they always say the same thing. No. No. We only worship Jehovah. To which I reply, you can't worship Jehovah without his son. He won't let you. Therefore, our things are different. You don't believe what I believe. Jesus is where it all begins. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father, which is what the Bible says is true. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. God's glory is in His Son, so you worship Him, and then you know Him. That's where it all begins. Next, write this down. God created you to walk with Christ, to worship Christ and to walk with Christ. But if you want to know Him, As the book of Isaiah says, if you want him with you when you go through the waters, with you when you go through the rivers, not overwhelming you, with you when you go through the fire, you have to have his son. All of God's presence is bound up in his son. He can't be with you if the son is not with you. It's impossible. Sometimes people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, how was it that he told his disciples, behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. He promised omnipresence. You can't say that. You have a hard enough time trying to figure out where your kids are when they don't call. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? You're not omnipresent. You'd love to be. Don't you want to buy a drone? Follow them all around. You're not with them always, nor can you be. Jesus is able to be with you always. He's omnipresent, which is a trait of God. God is with you if Christ is with you. Once God is with you, uh, we find out in the Bible, it says that all of his plans will work together for the good of those who love him. This is a conditional promise. If you know Christ and you know the Lord, his plan to you will be good, will be blessing, will be glory. If you don't know God through his son, everything in this life is leading you to eternal condemnation in the end. Okay? So this is a conditional promise. Often people will say to me, well, I know God's been with me every step of the way, but the, I know they don't know Jesus, and so I have to say to them, that's not true. God wants to be with you, but the Bible in the New Testament describes us before Christ as being without God. He's not there before Christ. But he wants to be there. He wants you to know he has a plan for your life. Hey, listen, this is so encouraging. Do you know that God has a plan for every event in your life if you're a child of, God, of his? Do you know that God has a plan for your pain? Every hard and hurtful thing that you've ever gone through matters because he has a plan for it. Do you know that he's going to use it to show others his glory, his grace, his strength, and his love? It serves a purpose and it's never wasted. Do you know that it's, he has a plan for your pain? We have people right now in this church walking through sickness with Christ, walking through pain Uh, With Christ, Walking through the heartache of children who are breaking their heart with Christ. Walking through divorce with Christ. They're doing it right now, and God is showing up. God has a plan for your pain. Do you know God also has a plan for your pleasure, meaning the good days of your life? We have people right now who are walking through good days with Christ. They just got married, they just had a baby, they just got the job, and they're not letting that drive Jesus away. Jesus wants you to know he's with you on the hard days. Jesus wants you to know he's better than your best days. He wants to walk you through everything in this life. But sadly, most people have no idea why they live. They're not aware of how all of the broken pieces of their life fit together in one overall plan. And it's usually the pain that drives them to realize that hard truth. If if you don't realize how your story fits into God's story, you'll scribble nonsense all over the pages of your life. And Jesus is central to God's story, which is why you have to walk with Christ to get him. God created you to worship Christ, to walk with Christ, and then the next one is, he created you to work for Christ. He has a plan to use you in this world, to share your faith with others, to build up the church. He wants to use you. To be his representation to those who are around you, you know. To sum all this up, Philippians one twenty one puts it best. It says this: "For to me, to live is one word, Christ. To die is gain." You want to know what my life is? Christ. Sum it all up for you in: I live for Christ, and I know that that continues forever. Okay. Write this down for the Christian: If uh, I live. For Christ at home, at work, at school, and at church. Others will see God's plan unfold. That's why I live. I live for Christ. Do you know that God wants you to live for Him in your home? How? Well, by teaching your children to worship, to walk, to work. By making sure that's the example you set. By strengthening your marriage through spiritual devotion. By disciplining your children according to what's right and wrong. This is what God made you for. Do you know that you can live for Christ at your job? How? Work with the highest integrity. Submit to authority. Do your best so that you make Jesus look awesome. I've had many jobs other than being a minister. When I first got saved, I was a DJ. So I would go to, I was in college. So I'd go to parties on the weekend, you know, like uh, graduation parties or weddings And uh, I was a new Christian, and I know the Bible says, whatever you do, you know, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so I was like, okay, Lord, uh, I'm about to DJ a wedding. Be glorified in me and uh, bless this night. Amen. And then I led people in the Macarena. I was a performing DJ. I owned an Elvis costume. Listen, if I can get out there and teach people the electric slide and glorify Jesus, you can glorify Jesus, whatever you are doing right now, all right, if I could do the hokey pokey to the glory of God, you can honor the Lord in your job right now, you can, and he wants you to, he wants you to bring him with you to work, I was a teacher before I was a pastor, and a few of us teachers would get together before school one day a week, and we'd pray for all of our students, I was glorifying God in the best way I knew how, I don't know what it looks like in your job, but you can bring Christ to work with you in a way that shows him off to others. You know, you can glorify God in your school. You can bring him to school with you. You can tell others about him. I've told you before I didn't get saved until I was in college, so I regret and mourn the loss of my high school years. I didn't get to tell my classmates about Jesus, but um, I had my 20th high school reunion yesterday night. 20th. If you're doing the math and trying to find out how old I am. I graduated high school at nine years old, so I had 20. But you know what? I I go to these reunions and I'm on a mission. I want to tell people what God did in my life. And uh, I realized that um, when when I graduated high school, the yearbook company messed up. So uh, they arrived two weeks late after our graduation. So nobody's yearbook got signed our senior year of high school. They're all blank. Well, I thought, I'll just bring my yearbook to the 20th and I'll have people sign it. So I'm walking around and I'm having people sign my yearbook and they're loving it. They're like, oh, this is hilarious. What am I going to write? And they're like, see you next year, you know, <laughs> keep in touch. <laughs> but, uh, but listen to what one girl wrote. She wrote, hey, Ryan Hall, congrats on finding God. Isn't that awesome? Because I'm walking around blabbing to everybody at the reunion of what God did. And uh, she, wouldn't have, she wouldn't have put that down 20 years ago. But now she can. I'm still trying to reach out to people from my school. And if you're in school right now, don't waste this time. Get the truth about Christ to all those around you while you can. You can live for Christ at school. You can live for Christ at church. How? Be here. Be at church. Bring an offering. Show your love for the Lord. Sing with all your heart. And then ask him to change you by his word. Then you'll be living for Him. All right, that's a summary of why we're here. God created you to worship Christ, walk with Christ, work for Christ everywhere you go. Now, how do I talk to others about the meaning of life? How do I have a conversation with someone about why they are here? It's crucial that you know you're going to talk to different kinds of people. And if you know the type of person you're talking to, then you'll know the angle that you can take. So you'll meet people... And you'll have a chance to tell them about God's purpose. Here's three groups of people who you're going to meet. Drop this down under number two. You'll meet people who don't worship Christ, but they do claim to walk with him. What do I mean by that? I mean, you will meet people who would include Jesus in their posse. Jesus would have a seat at the table of historical figures who have influenced them spiritually. In fact, you talk Jesus up, and they're like, yeah, yeah, I think he's great too. But they stop short of worshiping him. They don't worship him, but they will allow him to walk beside them in life. Primarily, if you talk to people who follow other religions, this is that group. They don't worship him, but he's kind of part of their story. For example, if you have a friend who follows the Hindu faith, they would believe that Jesus is one of many enlightened beings. So you tell them about how great Jesus is, and they'd say, yeah, yeah, I believe he's one of the enlightened beings, yeah. They would kind of walk with him. They'd let him in to their faith. But if you say, I think Jesus was the only truly divine enlightened being, they will say, whoa, 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 I don't worship him. He's one of many beings who has pulled this off. They would deny the uniqueness of Christ. They would stop short of making Jesus the only one who's 100% God. What about Muslims? Muslims would talk to you about Jesus. They'd say, yeah, he's great. He's virgin born. He's one of our prophets, but he's not even the greatest. They would tell you Jesus is a great prophet who spoke for God, and we should listen to him, and you'd be confused. But they would stop short of worshiping him. If you said, wow, that sounds great that you like Jesus, do you worship him too? No, no, absolutely not do we worship him. And if you were to say, do you believe Jesus is necessary for you to even be able to worship God? They'd say, no. Um, Many Muslims don't even think Jesus died on the cross. His hands never touched the wood. I'd say that's a pretty essential part of our faith. I'd say that if you take Jesus off the cross, you lose everything that's special about what he did for us in this world. So they'll, they'll say that he's part of their walk with God, but they don't worship him. Then there are those who would follow what would be called the New Age faith. What do I mean by New Age faith? New Age, I think Oprah has kind of made this version of faith very famous. It's where you take bits and pieces from all the religions, assuming that they're compatible, and you bring them all together, you smush them together, and it makes this new kind of faith, right? Um, it's kind of like the old country buffet version of religion. You take a little bit from all these different, and you put them on the same plate, and you call it faith. Um, that would be new age. They'd love to talk about Jesus. Sure, he's a great guy. Yeah, he's, he's in our walk. Um, he's in the in crowd, But they would say he's not anything special. You can become just as divine as he became. What he did, you can do. So they would not worship him. And they certainly would not say he's the only way and the truth and the life. They would absolutely not agree with that. If you're talking to someone who doesn't worship Christ, but does include him in their in crowd, it's essential that you show them that Jesus is one of a kind. The only divine son of God who came from heaven to earth, the only one who can save you. And while they'll fight you on that, that's the point of that conversation. You have to tell them that they were made, God created them to worship Christ, walk with Christ, work for Christ. And if they miss Jesus, they miss everything that God has for them in this world. All right, there's another group of people you'll talk to. You'll talk to some people who claim to worship Christ, you can jot that down, but they don't walk with him, they don't work for him. This is the group of people who are churched. This is the largest group of people you'll talk to. Most of the people you talk to about faith in this life will be in this group, and they will have a church background. And if you ask them, "Are you going to heaven?" they'll say yes. And if you ask them, "Do you believe in God?" they'll say yes. And if you ask them, "Have you ever gone to church and learned about?" It? they'll say yes. And they think they are serving God's purpose for their life because of their religious upbringing. They'll say, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Presbyterian, I walked the aisle, I prayed the prayer, I'm good with God. I worship God. But then, the longer you get to know them, you realize they don't walk with Christ in any visible manner, and they don't work for Christ at all, and you begin to suspect that they're not a Christian. They think they are, but you aren't sold. Now, I'm not talking about this group as being the Christian who's fighting their battles with sin, good days, bad days, and really trying to make it happen. I'm not talking about that group. I'm talking about the group of people who are false Christians. They have a dead form of faith and they're not alive spiritually, but they really think they're good with God. Most of the people you talk to are in this group. They'll say, oh yeah, I worship God, but they don't walk with Him. They don't work for Him. They're not saved. You have the challenge of trying to show a person who thinks they're saved that they're not saved. And you have to do it by showing them that their life doesn't line up with what they're saying about the Lord. How does God feel when a so-called Christian shows up to church once in a while on a Sunday, says some nice things about God, and then goes out and lives like hell every other day of the week? Is God okay with that? If people just show up on a Sunday every now and then, throw a few dimes in the plate, sing a few songs. Is God like, you know what, that's good enough. At least I'm getting something out of this guy. I'll let him into heaven. Um, it, how does God feel when someone wants to keep their life in the world and won't let God change anything about it, and then they just show up every now and then and, and, to make God feel good? Well, the Bible makes it very clear how God feels in James 4.4. 4. It says this, you adulterous people. So when you talk to this group, you don't want to start by calling them a whore, (laughs) but it would be biblical. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. How does God feel when I give him nothing throughout my life, but then show up to worship him every now and then, he feels like a wife would feel if her husband just went and slept with a hooker and then came home with a flower. That's how he feels. What? I got you a flower? You're, you're unfaithful. And people who think they can be in bed with the world all week long and then give God a flower will have hell to pay for their adultery, spiritual adultery. God will not allow that person into heaven. You have the job of trying to show them, even though they think they're going to heaven, that they're not. How do you do that? You tell them, hey, it sounds like you claim to worship Christ, but you're not walking with him, you're not working for him. You're a false Christian. That could be the greatest moment of their life. Do you know if you want the good life as defined by God, it starts when you die to yourself. How does God feel about all of your godless, selfish, worldly, vain ambitions? How does he feel about all of your dreams apart from him? Uh, He says, come and die. Jesus said, if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. God, what do you think of all my foolish, sinful, godless dreams and ambitions and hopes? Uh, put them in a box, close the casket, throw them under the ground, then we'll talk. The old you has to die. You can't have this love affair with sin in the world and then show up and give God a flower. And you have to call people out who are trying to live that way. We say here at Harvest that if your faith hasn't changed you, it hasn't saved you. And when you witness to someone who claims to be a Christian and you see no evidence of it, tell them that. Tell them that. They'll thank you for it in this life or in the next. You'll meet people who don't worship him, but they claim that he's part of their walk. You'll meet people who claim to worship him, but they don't walk or work, and you need to call them out on that. And then finally, you'll meet people who don't do any. They don't worship Christ, walk with Christ, or work for Christ. These are the agnostics, the atheists, these are the naturalists. They don't even care about Christ. Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts Comics, big movie coming out. See that Charlie Brown movie coming out? He was asked about the meaning of life, and here's what he said. I don't know the meaning of life. I don't know why we're here. I think life is full of anxieties and fears and tears. It has a lot of grief in it, and it can be very grim, and I do not want to be the one who tries to tell somebody else what life is all about. To me, it's a complete mystery. Why are we here? It's the best I got. I don't know, I can't know. He doesn't worship, walk, work for Christ. Maybe this is you. Maybe you're here this morning and you simply don't know why your life has unfolded the way it has. Maybe you hope that it's serving some higher purpose or in the end that God will do something with it, but you don't know. Maybe you're searching for a higher explanation. Why, why, why? Hey, there's great news. The Bible says Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came into the world to give you life from God. You can find it in him. Everything up to this point in your life was God's way of showing you how desperately you need him. You can't have life without his son. And God is calling you to be a part of his kingdom. Listen, this is your chance to welcome God into your mess. This is your chance to welcome him right in the middle of your pain, right in the middle of your despair, before it's too late Right now is your opportunity to watch him fill your life with the love that you've wanted to feel. Right now is your chance to watch God fill your life with the fullness of heaven, to take away that emptiness that haunts you. Right now is the chance for you to ask God to make your life more than just lying awake at night wondering what happened. Right now is your opportunity. You can watch him bring beauty up from ashes, but you have to invite his son in to give you life. You have to ask him through his son to give you peace and joy and forgiveness. Listen, listen, do you want that? Listen, do you want that? Do you want that? Because God wants that for you. He wants you to know why. He wants you to know why. And it's all through his son. I want us right now to take a moment to reflect, prayerfully reflect, on who Jesus is and how he's trying to lead us to the life that is truly life. Let's all bow our heads right now and close our eyes. And let's have a conversation with God in our hearts. Let's reflect right now on who Jesus is and what he's done. This is your chance, Christian. This is your chance to talk to God about anything that's getting in the way of God's purposes for you. This is your chance, Christian, to talk to God about anyone who's pulling you off of His awesome plan for you. This is your chance, non-Christian, for the first time to ask Jesus to become your life, to make Him your everything, to invite Him to be your Lord. Talk to God right now.